Thank you for listening to the New Life Church podcast. If you need any information about our church or if you'd like to give online, please visit us at newlifekingman.com. Amen. Well, this morning, I'm not going to be ministering to you, but we have something very, very special. Someone, I should say, very special. A very, very good friend of mine. Just enjoy his ministry. I've enjoyed him for a long, long time, a lot of years. He's spoken into my life and truly made a difference. Let's welcome Pastor Greg Johnson as he comes. Hallelujah. What's up? Well, it really is good to be here with you this morning. This is my yearly pilgrimage to Kingman, where I come and hang out with John. I've been friends with this church for many years, and this church has been a great friend to me, and um, I'm just glad for Jesus. Aren't you glad for the Lord this morning, for how he looks out for us and takes care of us? If you have a Bible, I'm going to read it in a moment from Luke 22. If you want to turn there, Luke chapter 22. Um, when you travel, you're always uh, wondering what to preach when I go different places, um, what fits, what doesn't fit, and not every sermon is for every church. But um, I kind of felt like this one uh, would fit this morning. Whether it does or not, don't tell me later. <laughs> it didn't. And, and that way we'll just remain friends and we'll move on down the road. But I did a series uh, recently called uh, When the Struggle is Real. And uh, often as Christians, we think that when we first get saved that all our problems are over. I'm saved. What could go wrong? <laughs> and so many things can happen to us along the way of being a believer, being a Christian. So um, in that series, I dealt with three different men. I dealt with Thomas and the battle he had with doubt because we all have a date with doubt. That uh, that's a blind date. She shows up at the, when you least expect it, and um, and then I talked about Peter uh, when he denied the Lord, when he had that, that time where his faith failed, and how that. And then I uh, the final one I want to do this morning was about Judas, when faith is abandoned, and the Lord just really impressed him on my heart uh, a while back, and I want to talk about him this morning, when faith is abandoned. Luke twenty two verse one says this: Now the feast of the unleavened bread. <clears throat> called the Passover, was approaching, and the chief priests and the teachers of the law were looking for some way to get rid of Jesus, for they were afraid of the people. Then Satan entered Judas, called Iscariot, one of the twelve, and Judas went to the chief priests and the officers of the temple guard and discussed with them how he might betray Jesus. They were delighted and agreed to give him money. He consented and watched for an opportunity to hand Jesus over to the crowd, when, or over when no crowd was present. In the 1950s, there were two young preachers that were on the rise, Charles Templeton and Billy Graham. Charles Templeton was a better preacher than Billy Graham. They came up at the same time. They both had powerful encounters with God that turned their lives around. But if you were a betting person back then, you'd have put your money on Charles. He was uh, articulate, he was educated, he, had a, he just had a way with people. And he had been a, a sports writer on the Toronto Globe, he was from Canada. And one night after a drunken evening at a strip club in Toronto, he came home feeling overwhelmed with guilt and despair and prayed in his bedroom asking if God 
could help him or touch him in any way. This is what he wrote. He wrote this in his journal. He said, suddenly I felt as if a black blanket <clears throat> had been draped over me. A sense of guilt pervaded my entire mind and body. The only words that would come were, Lord, come down. Lord, come down. And then slowly a weight began to lift, a weight as heavy as I am. It passed through my thighs, my torso, my arms and shoulders and lifted off. An indescribable warmth began to fill my body. It seemed that a light had turned on in my chest and that it cleansed me. I hardly dared breathe, fearing I might alter or end the moment. And I heard myself whispering softly over and over again, Oh, thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you. Later in bed, I lay quietly at the center of a radiant, overwhelming, all-pervasive love. Better preacher than Billy Graham. Radical conversion story. Dramatic experience. They both go into ministry together. At about the same time, they begin to go into public ministry. Templeton builds a church in Toronto of 1,200 quickly and is well known uh, for his skills of communicating. But then he begins to go through a dark time. He begins to battle with doubt, begins to wrestle with his faith, begins to go through a time where arguments against the Bible and the stories of the Old Testament all begin to, to, to just uh, uh, plague him and psycho you know, psychological questions about this and about that. And slowly his conversion begins to turn into a deconversion. He tries to talk to Billy Graham and tells him what's going on, but ultimately he, he gets no answers from uh, Billy. He walks away from his faith. Billy Graham, at the same time, hearing Charles Timlin, he's having the same questions. He's doubting his own faith. But he takes a different course that on a, on a golf course in the mountains of San Bernardino, clutching his Bible, tears in his eyes, he says, Lord, I don't understand. I can't answer all the questions, but I trust you. Amen. Billy Graham goes on to become one of the greatest evangelists the world's ever known. But Charles Templeton writes a book, Farewell to God, My Reasons for Rejecting the Christian Faith. So you have two conversions, two preachers, two evangelists, two struggles with faith. One goes on to write a book against his former faith. The one holds on to his faith and goes on to become one of the greatest evangelists of modern times. This is one of the most challenging issues that churches face is when people deconstruct their faith. People that have an experience, people that come to some sort of a conversion, and then walk away from it. How do we make sense of that? What do we do with that as the church? Someone had all the attending signs of conviction, supernatural encounter, and then walk away and say the whole thing is untrue. What do we, and how do we make sense of people when they deny their faith? Have you ever known someone? Have you had any friends throughout your life that someone that walked away from their faith? It is a troubling experience. It makes those that stay ask their own questions, uh, you know, ask their own questions about salvation. Can I lose my salvation or is it once saved, always saved? Listen, I'll tell you what I believe. I don't think you can technically lose your salvation, but you can deny your faith. So you just work on that. That's something you can chew on later, but but it can make you ask personal questions. When you see somebody that you, you knew was a Christian next to you, now they're gone. You know, is, there, is my faith real? Is what happened to me real? Maybe this is just a stage that, I, that I'm going through. You know, the reality is sociologists tell us that 44% of people in this room will go through a major faith transition 
at some stage of your life. You're going to change what you believe about certain things. You might transcend from being a Pentecostal to an Anglican. You might go from being a charismatic to becoming a Baptist fundamentalist. You might go from Buddhism to Christianity. But sometimes it's faith to no faith at all. But we all throughout our lives go through changes in what we embrace, what we believe. But the fastest growing group in the United States right now this morning are called nuns, N-O-N-E. They don't believe anything about anything. Their world is completely secular. Their world has no transcendent, nothing spiritual of any kind. And so what are we going to make of people so many? And you can, you can do your own. You can Google this if you like. But the deconstructing of faith is happening on a major scale. They're, they say that for every one person who comes to faith right now in the United States, there are four that are leaving. And so that's, that's a losing proposition. And so this is not something that, that has no uh, application. This is something that needs to be, th- it's not new because it's been going on, but it's something we need to know how to respond to. In 1 Timothy 4, the Bible talks about that. The Spirit says expressly in the last times, people will abandon their faith. And they will follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. And then it goes on to describe it. This is what we see happening in the story of Judas. Judas at some point, and his life walking with Jesus leaves his faith. And he betrays Jesus, looks for an opportunity for money to sell him out because he no longer is embracing the messianic vision that he had embraced at one time. This is a challenging passage for us because we seldom preach on people losing their faith. We're trying to preach on people gaining their faith and strengthening their faith. And it's confusing and painful to examine why faith fails. But I think it's increasingly necessary in a culture where people are increasingly abandoning their faith. I want to give you just three big ideas this morning and something you can think about and how we process this. Number one, our motives matter in our experience of faith. What's that mean? It means it matters why you got saved. It matters why you came to faith. This This is a huge key in understanding why people lose their faith. Because, you know, if you left the faith, what was it that is so disappointing about your faith that you're no longer willing to walk in it? Why are you so disappointed now you're walking away? Because you must have had some expectation that has not materialized. Because when people join any group, when people join any uh, any sort of a faith or religious tradition, there's a complexity of motives that are happening underneath. And some of these are simply social. In other words, I have a friend that goes to a thing, therefore I go to a thing. There are people that, 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 that join churches just because that's where their friends go, that's where they hang out, and that's what they do. There was a recent expose done on one of the largest church organizations in the world, and they were interviewing people that had attended for years, had no belief in the Bible, no belief in Jesus, but the music was awesome. And they bought into the experience and the whole vibe of what was going on. But they weren't buying any of the background story. Truth is, people join churches for all kinds of reasons. It wouldn't hurt you this morning to ask yourself, why are you here? What's your motive for being here? Our motives are important. When you read the story of Judas, you realize there were mixed motives he had in following Jesus. 
At some point, he's looking at Jesus and says, you're not going the direction I envisioned you were going to go when I started following you. Because at the time of, of Jesus, there were these very deep undercurrent of messianic expectations in the Jewish people who were believing a, a deliverer would come. The prophets had said there'd come a Messiah and he would, he would overthrow their oppressors and put uh, them back in charge. And Jerusalem would be the center of the earth. And so they're like, oh man, you know, the, 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 one of these days, it's going to be like David's golden era. A Davidic kingdom to restore Jerusalem to all its former glory. So when Jesus shows up, talking about, I've come preaching the kingdom of God, they're like, we're all in. He's going to kill the Romans. This would have been a big motivation for people to start following him. This is why along the way, Jesus starts culling the herd. When he shows up, they're heck excited. They wanted to ride on his glorious coattails into a glorious new political era. Worthy cause, wrong motive. And this was certainly going on in Judas's heart because this idea of being a Jew and, and attaching yourself to the king of the Jews and the, the, the possibility of power and elevation was intoxicating. But it also says he was a thief. Not everybody who follows is on the up and up. Someone said you can tell how good a church is if you can leave your purse on the seat and walk away. <laughs> Something to think about. Watch your purse. But there are warnings all through the New Testament about the ulterior motives people have sometimes about being in church, about why they're here this morning. Acts chapter 20. Paul is bidding farewell, you know, to the Ephesian church where he spent a number of years in Acts 20, 29. He says, I know that after I leave, savage wolves are going to enter in among you. They're not going to spare the flock. Even among your own numbers, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after themselves. Some people come to churches to get followers from your church. They join up to gain influence and they have shady motives. Some people come to churches because they're part of a pyramid scheme and they got some cryptocurrency you might be interested in. They want you to sell some soap and become a millionaire. Stuff happens in church. Sometimes people get involved in churches because they've been thrown out of another church for their special revelations. I've had them come into my church. We love your church, Pastor Greg. This church is the bomb. Can I tell you what I believe about this? <laughs> and they love your church until they find out you're not buying their story. Because they, have, they love the church until you, they begin to unpack their real motives for being there as they're starting their own movement within your movement, which is like a leech. I spent about a half a century in full-time pastoral ministry, and not everyone sitting next to you right now has the same motivations. 2 Peter 2, verse 1, But there were also false prophets among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. They will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the sovereign Lord who bought them, bringing swift destruction on themselves. Many will follow their depraved conduct and will bring the way of truth into disrepute. In their greed, these teachers will exploit you with fabricated stories. 
people come in with shady motivations. Sometimes people follow Jesus simply because they think he'll solve all their problems. Anybody here? I got problems. If I, if I get saved, will they go away? No. In fact, we're going to add some new ones to the pile. It's true, isn't it? We have this idea that our problems will be solved. In John chapter 6, is a great story of Jesus feeds the 5,000. This crowd is rural peasants. They're poor people. They're hungry. They're struggling. After they eat the meal, they're like, he's got our vote. It sounds like the last election. That's what, you know. Thank you. John chapter 6, verse 14. After the people saw the sign Jesus performed, they began to say, surely this is a prophet who has come into the world. Jesus, knowing they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again into a mountain by himself. Because sometimes people want Jesus for what he can do for them, but they don't want Jesus. We want Jesus to be a parachute in case we die, but we don't want to live for him every day. You don't want me, you want my miracles. Jesus knows that kind of motivation will not go the distance. Here's the challenge. Our motives are going to be revealed under pressure. You can only sustain false motives in your faith for so long. At some point, what you believe, what you really believe, it's going to show up. Because there's just, you know, life has a way of getting you in a rear chokehold. Thanks, John. It's an inside joke. You don't know nothing about it. <laughs> Alex, life has a way of getting you in a rear naked chokehold and causing you to f- struggle. And when it does, what's inside of you comes out. Don't you also scratch a Christian, find a heathen? Because life has the ability to do that to us. And if you're just following Jesus for the good stuff, when something bad happens, you're out. Or it doesn't go your way. Or, 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 or the, you know, the relationship doesn't work out. Or the money doesn't work out. It's like, if, if that's what you're serving him for, you're going to miss it. Amen. It isn't about having all your problems solved. It's about having somebody that will help you work through those things. Amen. Our motives are revealed under pressure. And... and, and, and in John 6, Jesus drops the heavy teaching about, you know, eating my flesh, drinking my blood. And uh, it's, it, when they heard that, they said, oh, man, that, I don't even like that sermon at all. <laughs> and they said, this is a hard teaching in John 6. Who can accept it? Aware that his disciples were grumbling about this, Jesus said to them, does this offend you? And then he said, I'm sorry for my microaggression. I would never offend you. <laughs> oh, wait. That's not what he said. He he didn't apologize for triggering them. He intentionally did that. Life will trigger you, man. It'll get on your last nerve. And then you'll find out what you really believe and who you really trust in. In John 6, he says, listen, what if you see the Son of Man ascend to where he was before? The Spirit gives life. The flesh counts for nothing. The words I've spoken, they are full of spirit and life. Yeah. 
These hard sayings are full of spirit and life. Yet there are some of you who don't believe, for Jesus knew from the beginning which of them would not believe and would betray him. He went on to say, that's why I told you that no one can come to me unless the Father enables him. And from that time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. There are a lot of folks that will follow Jesus until they come to a place where what he wants from them, they don't, are unwilling to do, unwilling to give. You know, it does mean something to be a Christian. It doesn't mean you have an hour different on Sunday. It means your life changes. I love Peter in this encounter. Jesus says, uh, Peter looks at him, so will you leave me also? Peter's like, this is really harder than I thought. But you know what? I don't understand everything, but where would I go? You have the words of eternal life. Haven't you ever felt that way? God, I don't get what's going on, honestly, between you and I. Screwed up. But you know what? I still trust you. I think you've got me. I think, you, I think I'm in the hollow of your hand. I think it's going to be okay. But I, I don't have all the answers. I don't, have all, I don't even know all the questions. I just know that I believe you. I trust you because my faith is not in my life. My faith is in you being in my life. And people all hear the same teaching. And one says, it's too hard, I'm out. And the other says, it's hard, but I believe. And that's what's going to happen in your life. You're going to go through a rough patch or a hard patch, and you're either going to say, this is too hard to do, I can't do this anymore, or you're going to say, this is really hard, and he's going to help me do it. The problem is that people have different motivations. If you got saved because you want everything to, all these great things to happen to you every single day, then you, you might want to try a different religion. The pressure of rejection, hard teachings, and other things will eventually enter your life and expose what's inside of you because motives matter and motives get exposed when things get hard. Number two, true faith takes time to be revealed. I don't have time to unpack all of this, but if you convert for the wrong reasons, you'll deconvert for other reasons. But it takes time for these things to play out. And sometimes as a pastor of like, you know, half a century, I've seen people who, um, uh, the reason they deconvert is because their conversion was based upon false expectations. In other words, they figured if I do this, if I pray this prayer, if I, if I get saved, then Jesus is going to do this for me. In other words, you're coming to him on your terms. You know what, I'll let you into my life if, as opposed to, I need you no matter what. Isn't that a huge difference? This is why a lot of us get saved in crisis conversion, foxhole conversion. You know what I mean? Because you realize I need something to happen in my life and I need something to happen now. But see, it takes time for that to play out. You know, I can guarantee you since July of 1971, I've had a few chances to bail. (laughs) I've had a few chances to say, you know what? I'm not digging this scene at all. You know, I didn't sign up for this, you know. And yet, because Jesus was so deeply embedded in my life, I realized, what would I do? Would I go back to smoking pot for crying out loud? I'd grow a ponytail? And I, I'm not going there, you know. I'm not against a ponytail. But here's the thing. 
that the deeper you, your faith is, that the motivation that you had at the beginning shows up. One study on deconversion I was reading about gave 10 phases that people go through when they start to leave their faith. And you can thank me right now for not going into all 10. But the first, <laughs> the first phase of converting is called the fulfillment of meaning void. That people get saved because it fulfills a sense of meaning in their life. Okay? And they, listen... The same, the reason that they convert is they want to fulfill a sense of meaning. The reason they deconvert is they've lost that sense of meaning. Because the meaning was defined by them. They defined what it meant, what it was going to mean. What am I hoping to get out of this thing that Jesus is offering me? My expectations versus his promises. Because you can enter salvation on your terms sometimes. And, and, and you can respond to an invitation thinking that this is what's going to happen. And uh, what happens is you're following your own desires. You're following your own. You're not surrendering. You're not laying it down. You're not crucified with him. If you don't clarify what and how you came to faith, you'll struggle down the road. Persevering in your faith and deconverting won't be a big step. Our false expectations can cause us to realize that one day the thing that we have attached our meaning to has stopped meeting our needs. You know, I got saved at 19 years old. I was in and out of jail. I had drug issues. I liked to rob your house. That was had issues. You know, it's <laughs> not a good person. Well, you know, it didn't take me long to outgrow that, you know, to where that was no, no longer, you know. But, you know, once I quit, you know, doing that stuff... I didn't think, I'm okay now, because I had other issues that weren't on the surface. They were, they were far deeper issues. And so when I gave my life to Jesus, I said, this is my last shot. I've tried everything else. This, this is the last train I'm getting on, and this one needs to work. And so the beautiful thing was that he never lost meaning for me, even when things became cloudy. That he, still, he was still everything to me. And so sometimes we have attached meaning, you know, to an institution or to a church and not to the Lord. And institutions let us down. That's a recipe for disaster. But it took time for the wrong motivations in Judas to show up. I mean, he walks in for over three years. It didn't happen overnight. It wasn't like he got saved one day and the next week. I mean, this is stupid. I'm not doing this. He would, have, he would have walked with the Lord. He saw miracles. He probably did miracles. And then one day it just changed. And when you read those words in the text in Luke where it says, then Satan entered Judas. That's sobering. Because proximity is no guarantee of loyalty. The dude's an insider. He's not a follower in the crowd. He's one of the, he's one of the inner circle. He saw it all. He heard it all. All the inner teachings, all that stuff. And yet in his heart, there was a wrong motivation. He had a, another agenda. I don't care what your theology is. That is a frightening passage that Satan entered a man who had followed Jesus for three years. Jesus talked about giving things time to test true faith. whole parable of the sower is a, a picture of short-lived faith. Seed lands on the shallow soil. Birds come and carry it away. Lands on the shallow where there's a rock underneath. The rock heats it up. It only lasts for a certain But it takes time for that to show up. 
One lands among the thorns, and the thorns grow up and choke it out. The one lands among good soil, because all soil looks alike. And you can't tell it, only time will tell. Time will tell how deep your conversion is. Time will tell what your motivations are, or if you have a counter agenda, a shadow agenda. Jesus tests our motives. Over the years, I've seen so many people get saved. Churches I've pastored, places I've been. And honestly, we are the worst judges of how good someone's conversion is. Right? Because sometimes you'll have a, a person that gets saved, and they get saved, and then they get saved again, and they get saved again, and they get saved again. So, you know, and after, it's like, listen, initial the card. We'll see you next Sunday. Peace out, homie. Not going to make it. Then, yeah, there's other person, it's just doe-eyed devotion, you know. Can I get a new Bible, a big one? You know, I so say they just, you know, they're, they're into it. And you think to yourself, this one's going to make it. That guy over there? But then what happens is this guy, he becomes giant loser. And this guy over here you thought wouldn't make it becomes one of your star converts. Because you can't tell. Because they all look like people, and, and you, you don't know what's going on beneath the surface of their lives. You don't know rocky soil or thorns. or You can't tell the difference until time goes by. And part of the lessons for us is that when you see somebody who comes to the faith or is, or is in the faith and they're struggling, don't freak out. Don't freak out because somebody comes to you with doubts. You know, I mean, I'm telling you, I came from a culture where if you ever admitted you had a doubt, they would have cast something out of you. I said, I've got a demon. I've got a doubt. <laughs> Step away. <laughs> Don't cap on somebody who's struggling. Spend some time. Don't, and, and, you know, don't, don't freak out if somebody's doing amazing. Because <laughs> you, you can't tell what's going on beneath the, the soil of their heart. And so, motivations matter, number one. Number two, true faith takes time to be revealed. And number three, denying our faith is painful. This is the thing that got me. This is the part that really drew me to this, to this sermon and to Judas's life. Because his denying his faith, and then, you know, at the Last Supper, the whole thing, him to whom I give the sop, him will betray me, that which thou doest, do quickly. I mean, that whole story. And then Judas going out and selling him out, all of that. And then later going and, and hanging himself. Uh, that's a difficult story to process. Because you think about, th this was a real guy. He's, he, he's not symbolic. There was a Judas, a real guy that Jesus chose, and he followed Jesus, and he saw amazing things. He saw astounding things. But one day, questions rose up, and, and, his, and his, own, uh, his own narrative began to take over the kingdom narrative. And, and before long, you know, he's going a different direction. And he was chosen. Think about it. Jesus chose Judas knowing ultimately he would come to a place where he would back away. How could this happen? What's going on? 
And I'll tell you something, salvation and conversion and backsliding and deconversion, that is, that is, tough, that is uh, tough territory. It's not easy to figure out the whole thing. Arminians and Calvinists have been fist fighting in the parking lot for 300 years about who's saved and how long they're saved and can they stay saved. Arminians says, duh, Jesus came to save everybody, John 3.16. Free will, bro. Calvinists, no way, Jesus only came to save the elect, those chosen from the beginning, everyone else is going to hell. You can't choose to be saved, go to hell. God chooses, he'll, you know, and so these guys are going to fight forever. And that stuff can be disorienting. But we need to be cautious how we approach people who are struggling with their faith. You need to be cautious how you would talk to Judas. Because the thing I want you to see in the story, the thing that the Lord spoke to me about was how painful it had to have been for Judas to do what he did. To turn on something that you once loved, you cherished, was the most important thing in your life. When he betrays him, he kisses him. I mean, think of that through for a moment. He doesn't come in, well, I'm, you know, he does, there's not this belligerent. There's not this thing. There's this painful, almost conflicted kiss. And the Lord says, betrayest thou me with a kiss? And you think about it in, in his own heart, what he's going through, what he's battling with, and, and uh, how hard and difficult that would have been. And I want you to see the anguish and the disorientation and the betrayal of things he once held dear. I want you to see it because I think sometimes when people backslide or people turn away, we're unmoved by it. Well, good riddance. Hell's not even full yet. Keep going. But there's something tragic about people like Judas, who after he had done what he did, saw no way of reconciling, and he hung himself. That is sad. And I know sometimes people, you know, leave churches because they didn't like the music or the coffee was cheap. They weren't using a, you know, a special bean. Their feelings got hurt. People leave churches for all kinds of reasons. You know, for me, it's not a problem. Because <laughs> I'm not pastoring. <laughs> but it's not a problem for me. You know why? Because the kingdom's big. The kingdom has room. Listen, there's a weird church out there waiting for you. <laughs> they're, they're everywhere, you know what I'm saying? That the kingdom can embrace people who have different tastes in music, different tastes in, in everything about what's going on on the stage and all that. What's she wearing? I mean, we have all that stuff happening. And I think the kingdom of God can handle different people, don't you? Yeah. And so I'm not bothered when people leave because they, of a preference they have for how long a sermon is or what a, what a pastor looks like. I, mean, I don't care about that. But sometimes if they're leaving because they're wrestling with their faith, they don't need our cold dismissal as prophetic apostates who are fulfilling end-time prophecy. Amen. They need us to care. They need us to have something in our heart that says, listen, man, I don't know what it is you're going through, but Jesus can work you through this. 
He's not afraid of your doubts. He's not afraid of your questions. He's, he's not afraid of, of, you know, he's, he's not afraid of Instagram. He's okay. He can work you through this. Jesus is okay with that. If your encounter is real, he can work you through all the things that are going on. And so here's the question. How are we going to respond to people like that? Because, because like I told you right now, for every one that converts forward are deconverting. And so you're going to deal with this at point. People you meet out, out, out in the world, people you try to witness to, that'll run their story on you. Yeah, I used to do that, but I don't do that anymore because of this, because of this, because of this. How do we respond? One way we can do is by getting, examining ourselves. There's a movie, and I think you can still find it on Prime Video. It's, it's, it's excruciating to watch, but it's called Silence. It's a story of two Jesuit priests who, um, you know, Back in the days of feudal Japan, you know, 1800s, their mentor has gone to Japan as a missionary. And while he's there, he, he leaves the church. He leaves the faith and just renounces his faith. And these two young converts of his, these two young disciples of his can't believe that that's happened. So they're going to go to Japan and track him down. They're going to go heal their backslidden master. And so the movie is just the whole story of them going and finding him and to, to strengthen him. And the, and the film starts off with these two young converts are so full of confidence and they're so full of, you know, how could anybody not believe? How could anybody renounce their faith? How could anybody deconstruct their faith? How could he? And after they spend years of their life in Japan, the whole story, I won't blow up in case you want to waste two hours. You can watch it. But no, it's not waste. It's just hard to watch. But at the end, they're old men. The two comrades are old men. And now they're not saying, how could he? They're saying, I understand what he did. Because they'd been through some things themselves. And you understand, I, I can understand why people have, uh, have doubts about the scripture. I understand the culture we live in and what's going on. I understand the things that have been seeded into you as a child. Things you don't even realize. Our brains have been rewired in recent years to receive. And there's a narrative you buy into that you aren't even aware of sometimes. I think people need to be careful about how far we distance ourselves from those who are struggling with their faith because we can become prideful and arrogant just as much. And we have to come to a place where we understand, you know, that our faith is not just about me holding on to Jesus. My faith is about Jesus and holding on to me. It's not, just, it's, not just what I, it's not just my faith. It's his love and his grace that holds on to me. Sometimes when people leave the church, they leave the faith at the same time. But it's, it's possible, listen, it's possible to leave a church and still keep your faith. Some, you know, I, I grew up in a church culture where if you left the church, you left God. I just don't like the church, but then you, you don't like God. Well, I really like God, but I don't like you. <laughs> that... And that, that was a thing. And, and, and we're all young converts, and we were, that was just drilled into us 
But I had to find out years later that you can be part of, a, of, a, of the sociology of a church culture and the relationships and the, and the rituals and all the things they do. And when you become uncomfortable with those, you can pull the lever and jettison those and still maintain your faith in Jesus Christ, his death upon the cross and resurrection, and you're going to heaven someday. Because that's just an institution. Okay? It's a version. Every church is a version of church. And I know that you think, we all think, that I used to think, this is, this is, if Jesus came to earth, he'd come to my church. <laughs> then I realized, no, if he did, I'd probably be scared to death <laughs> ever showed up like that. But, it's, but, but years ago, I had to deconstruct the, 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 the cultural, church cultural environment that I'd grown in. I had to deconstruct that. And, and, and reconstruct it in a healthy way. But I never quit loving Jesus. I didn't understand people who said, I hate the church and I hate God too. Boom, they're out. Because I really got saved. And when you really get saved, honestly, you're ruined for anything else. You're a terrible backslider. You're a witness in the bars. Yeah. You're honestly ruined. The point is that sometimes we view people who left the church as if they left Jesus. And, and, and for those that left, that hurts them. The test of my faith is my church affiliation. Some people pass through different churches all their lives. I've been involved in all kinds of churches. I've, I, I served at a church that basically would have been a Jewish roots, hyper-faith kind of church. And it wasn't my kettle of fish. But I'll tell you one thing, I learned about faith there. I learned that mine was deficient. <laughs> and that what I thought, what I was calling faith was really just hope. <laughs> I hope, I hope, I hope, I hope. Or wishing, as opposed to believing and declaring. And so you learn something from different churches that you pass through in your life. Okay, and so I've learned, you know, God put things in me that I needed there. I wasn't going to get it where I was, so I, I had to go someplace else to get it. Amen. It isn't about what church you go to. It's about who lives inside your heart. Second yeah. Corinthians says, examine yourselves. See whether you're in the faith. Test yourselves. Don't you realize that Christ is in you unless, of course, you fail the test? And over the course of all of our lives, we'll go through seasons and stages and the sociology of religion and church experience will be challenged. You'll be disillusioned at times, but you can hold on to your encounter with Jesus and not let it hinder your growth. I don't think everybody here this morning, this is the only church you've ever been to. And finally, we need to be patient. I love this text. I read it this morning. It's in Jude 22. It says, be merciful to those who... Who doubt. Do you love the matching handkerchief? It just, just, I, mean, just, I wasn't going to mention it, but <laughs> I thought I would. Be merciful to those in doubt. Think about that. Someone doubts. Brother, you need to get it right. Come here. Lucy, Satan, come out of it. No. Be merciful, it says. Of, save others by snatching them from the fire. To others show mercy mixed with fear, hating even the clothing stained with flesh. There's people that you'll meet along the way that they just need a little patience from you. That struggle is a season. It's not their whole life. It's just a season. And whenever we see faith being attacked or stolen from people, it's the enemy at work. That's the enemy that's doing that. 
That's not, that's, that's more going on than them. And so you and I have no influence in people whose lives we condemn. You have no influence in people you're condemning. And so how do we treat people who are walking away from the faith? One, we're patiently, and we're patiently hopeful. We're like the, the prodigal son's father. We stand by the road hoping to see them coming back and leaving room for them to come back. And I think that's important, especially, I think, in the culture we live in, is that we be godly, patient, and hopeful people. Because Jesus would be waiting for them to come back, and he wants us to be those kind of people that wait as well. I began my message with the story of Charles Templeton and the great evangelist and preacher who came up alongside Billy Graham. He died in 2001, and he was interviewed by Lee Strobel, who was a journalist who came to know the Lord by going after the Bible to kind of attack it, <laughs> and he got saved. And he went to visit him at his home, and he interviewed him, and this is the interview. He says, during the course of their conversation, Charles Templeton vigorously defended his disavowal of God and his rejection of the Bible. There was no apparent chink in the armor of his atheist soul. Then Strobel directed the old man's attention to Jesus. How would he now assess Jesus at this stage in his life? Strobel says that amazingly, Templeton's body language softened. His voice took on a melancholy and reflective tone. And then incredibly, Templeton said this, Jesus was the greatest human being who has ever lived. He was a moral genius. His ethical sense was unique. He was the wisest person that I've ever encountered in my life or my reading. His commitment was total, and it led to his own death, much to the detriment of the world. Strobel listened and quietly commented, well, it sounds like you care about him. Well, yes, Templeton acknowledged he's the most important thing in my life. He stammered, I, I adore him. Everything good I know. Everything decent, I know. Everything pure, I know. I learned from Jesus. Strobel was stunned. He listened in shock. And he said that Templeton's voice then began to crack. And then he said in a wavering voice, I, I miss him. And with that, the old man burst into tears. And with a shaking frame, he wept bitterly. Here's a man who spends his life Denying Jesus. But when it comes time to talk about Jesus and to think about Jesus at this stage in his life, something's changed. On June 7, 2001, Templeton died of Alzheimer's. Before his death, his wife, whose name was Madeline, Madeline, his wife, never wavered in her faith. She stayed married to him all through these years of his departure, his getting saved, departure from faith, and then on his deathbed, and she wrote this article to the Toronto Globe, and suddenly she said, she's in the room with him, and as he's dying on his deathbed, he, he says these words, Madeline, do you see them? Do you hear them? The angels, they're calling my name, Madeline. I'm going home. Suddenly, Madeline said, he became very agitated, looking intensely towards the ceiling of the room, his eyes shining more blue than I'd ever seen them. 
He cried out, look at them, look at them, they're so beautiful, they're waiting for me. Oh, their eyes, Madeline, their eyes are so beautiful. Then with his great voice, he cried out, I'm coming. She said, I really believe that he finally made peace in his own way with God and that he was going home to be with his Jesus. In fact, when I get to heaven, he's the first person I'm going to look for. Amen. Amen. Would you bow your heads this morning? You never know what's going on in people's hearts. You never know. I think when Strobel went to interview Templeton, he's thinking that this is just going to be a bitter, hardened old man. But somehow through the years, the Holy Spirit had to have been working, had to have been hovering over Templeton in some way. Because when, when, it, when it came down to the end, when it came down to the, where the rubber meets the road, there was this amazing tenderness towards Jesus. You never know when the grace of God is going to break it on somebody who looks hopeless. Looks like there's no way they'd ever been their knee to Jesus. You have no way of knowing. I want to encourage every person here who's dealing with a, a backslidden loved one or a spouse, a son or a daughter that's rejected and deconstructed and walked away from faith. I want to encourage you this morning. Jesus has not given up on them. He has not walked away from them. He has not left them. And he has a way of working on them throughout their lives in ways that you cannot see. There may be no visible evidence of that for your eye. So be merciful and be kind and don't give up hope when people look like they've given up on Jesus. Don't give up hope. Father, this morning, I thank you for your word. I thank you for your amazing love and kindness that reaches out to us even in our rebellion. The scriptures say that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. That you have this way of penetrating the darkest, most rebellious, obstinate parts of our soul. And something about your love just melts us. Something We can't fight it. And it always wins. Love never fails. It has the capacity to break through in every situation. And I lift up this morning every person, Lord, who has relationship in this congregation or is in this congregation and might be struggling this morning, might be wrestling with faith and the questions that are, being, that are flying at them from every direction in a culture where secularism has been weaponized against us, Lord. I pray that you'll just strengthen them. I pray that you'll, your spirit will continue to deal with them and draw them and work on them, Lord, and that those of us who know you will be patient and hopeful along the way. Father, give us a revival. Give us a revival of backsliders, Lord. Give us a revival of those who once walked with you and have walked away. Bring them home, Lord. Bring them home, Lord, like you brought Charles Templeton home, Lord. And we thank you for that this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand to your feet this morning? I want to thank you for coming this morning. I want to thank Pastor John for giving me an opportunity to preach again. And I just want to say how I pray for this church.
I pray for your pastors. I have confidence in the leadership here and the vision, the direction, and the way you're going. Every time I come, it just feels better. It's just good things happening here. So I love you. I look forward to seeing you like here, there, or in the air. And I'm just going to release you to go and have lunch. Bye-bye. Yeah. Thank you for listening to the New Life Kingman podcast. We can't wait to see you next week.